The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Richard Lee. And I'm Sean Kane. We have the skinny, the scoop and the surprise of this year's overall Costa Book of the Year award. And it's not who you think. And I'm delighted to announce that the winner of the 2018 Costa Book of the Year is The Cutout Girl by Barvanis. Yes, we were totally wrong in thinking it would inevitably be Sally Rooney. But we like to think we were also totally right in giving you the early heads up on Bart Van Ness in our interview with him last week. We'll have more on the shock Costa winner later on. And history was made when Thomas Page McBee stepped into a boxing ring at Madison Square Gardens for a fight. But why? But first, you know us, always lounging around in comfy chairs reading books. Except not, definitely not this week. Uh, you've been out and about rushing around all over the world, haven't you, Claire and Sean? Where, where have you been off to? Yes, I've been to Calcutta, where I was a judge on the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature, which we gave to Jayant Kaikini, another surprise winner, um, <laughs> because he is a writer in the Canada language and translated by Tejaswini Naranjana. And this is a, a minority language which hasn't even been translated into other Indian languages, let alone into English. Mm. And as Tejaswini pointed out, Jayant is not, he actually is writing in his second language because his, his actual language is Karnataka. But there is not a written script for it, so so they all they have to write in Canada. So it's almost it, doubly translated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, fitting because it's the first translated winner of that prize. Yeah, yeah, and it's a collection, a short story collection called No Presents Please, and it's all about Bombay. And so this is supposedly an, a prize for novels, but we made the point that actually in it was actually making a novel of the city of Bombay. But it's looked at very much from the from the margins, from the small people who come in and live small lives. It's not this the, the grandiose metropolitan story that we tend to hear about these great Asian cities. So I was absolutely thrilled that he won. He had an incredibly stiff field, including Kamala Shamsi, Mosin Hamid, Neil Mukherjee, and it just felt like the right person at the right time. A book that needed a bit more attention. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I mean, it's not that it needs a bit more attention. It should get more attention. <laughs> and how about you, Sean? Where have you been to? Uh, so I went to Indonesia for a week, which was uh, it's basically part of every year uh, we have London Book Fair, which is sort of very industry-facing. So members of the public don't necessarily get to go to London Book Fair, um, but it tends to be a place where lots of the decisions are made about the books that will be published each uh, year. And so each year, London Book Fair chooses a different country to sort of elect as their market focus. And uh, this year it was Indonesia. So this basically means that for the first time, we actually probably see a, a bit of a groundswell of Indonesian writing being translated into English because there's really not very much being translated uh, into English up till this point. So I went to Jakarta uh, for a week and met a whole bunch of authors who will all be coming to London later in the year to meet publishers. And sign book deals at the London Book Fair. Yeah, Town. exactly. <laughs> and so who were the authors that, that were most most exciting that you met? Well, there's one particular author um, who I'm actually looking forward to speaking to quite a lot more. I spent about an hour with him and he's just had such an incredible life. His name is Seno Gumira Ajidama and he is a quite well-known journalist there. But he basically, he presents a lot of his journalism as sort of short stories and sort of satirical takes.
takes on really genuinely troubling things in Indonesian society, so corruption and censorship. And um, he's had quite a lot of run-ins with governments before, and he's a bit of a rock star. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to see more of his books in English. There's also a great young writer called Inten Paramaditha. Um, she's Indonesian, but she's actually based in Sydney. And she has her first short story collection coming out in April with Harvel Secker, which is called Apple and Knife. And it's sort of kind of a, a, like a Daisy Johnson style look at womanhood, but in a sort of disgusting sort of horrific lens. Sort and that of. Is, is that set back in her old country? Or is that now in Australia? Um, a lot of it is uh, is Indonesian society, and she sort of uses a lot of mythology. And the, the first story in the collection is sort of a Indonesian version of Cinderella. So a lot of body horror, but a lot of sort of very uh, interesting sort of points about sort of the female position in society particularly in a country like Indonesia which is both very diverse and multicultural but also has its roots really as a sort of Islamic country. Grounded in all that hot wet weather. Yeah exactly (laughs) Um, so that's really exciting and that'll be out in April. And you're off again next week aren't you Claire? Yeah, I'm off to Cartagena, um, where Hay has an outpost. Um, I have actually been before, and it's the most brilliant, brilliant place and a wonderful festival. And um, there'll be people like Chimamanda, Ngozi Adichie, Zadie Smith, Philippe Sands, Rosie Boycott. So a lot of discussion. I'm expecting a lot of discussion around the environment and around the what they call the orange economy. There's different ways of coping with where we are now. Um, yes, yeah, so I mean, I've literally been three days in the UK and I'm now off in the opposite to an opposite time zone. So goodness knows how I'm going to be. I have to take my, my gummy melatonin sweets, <laughs> to, which, to which Sean introduced me. <laughs> Some people sound like a drug dealer or something. <laughs> now, regular listeners will know that there's nothing we love more than a bit of book prize speculation. The Costas give us double rations because not only do we get five category winners to mull over, but one of those five gets chosen as overall book of the year. Two weeks ago, we were talking about this and we firmly placed our hats on Sally Rooney winning for normal people. And we were wrong. Well, the thing is, we were sort of slightly begging this to happen because there is a a history of the absolute front runner Mm. falling at the last hurdle. I mean, look at... Sadie Smith, you know, she did. It took ages for her to win anything. Mm. But it's the sort of thing. It, it, it's it's not like like Bart Vanessa's cutout girl isn't entirely deserving of the prize. No, but exactly. there is a sort of sense that Sally Rooney's Normal People really was a book of the year last year. That it was, and it hasn't really won anything prominent, despite being nominated for basically everything. Mm. <laughs> but maybe the two are connected. I mean, I think sometimes panels feel that if a book has already got attention, that mm. they can they have the flexibility to give it to another book, which is very deserving, as you say, but hasn't been so widely read. Mm. It's got this fantastic story surrounding it, you know, right up to the fact that Lean, the girl who, who the story is told, who was eight years old when Bart Van Ness's grandparents took her in in the Netherlands in the, during the Second World War, was there, aged 85, to receive the prize. Without families, you don't get stories. And um, I found that so deeply in the process of researching and writing this book. Um, it's a book really about, ultimately, my love, Aline, who is here. I'm... I know that without family, you have no story. But I have a story, thank you. Bart, and uh, I also have kind of family again. (laughs) 
So that was Lean. It must have been a really extraordinary evening for her. You know, this is somebody who, who had lost contact with this family who'd sheltered her during the war after a bust up over actually a very mundane thing, who has created this new family, has come back into, the, into orbit with the grandson of the people who took her in. What he does that's so clever is that he counterpoints the horror which is going on in the background. Lean's parents were killed. She was an abandoned child who did suffer terrible abuses from rogues among the people who were looking after her. And yet she has made a good life. And yet things continue. There are normal people in, in horrible, abnormal circumstances. And how does he go about giving this kind of this, this feeling of the, the detail that underpins this life? It's very calm, his writing, and it's very observant of very small details. Now, we're going to have a reading that he gave us um, when he came in for an interview, which you, you'll see exactly what I mean. He, he focuses on, in that, this case, in, on a picture of a duck. And what he says is the, the picture of the duck has no meaning except for its history. Once you have its story, you understand that it's not just a picture of a duck. Mm. And I suppose, you know, in a way, that's it's quite Sebaldian, his writing, um, in that sense, the way that it teases out the meaning of commonplace things. So this, this is a point from midway in the book where I'm starting to uncover this network of resistance that actually went on in my uh, mother's home village, which also I didn't know about and, and none of her family knew about. So this is me waking up in my grandparents' house, not the grandparents who looked after Lean, but another set. In Benicom the next morning, I wake up to an empty house. My aunt and uncle, young Willem and Sabrina, must have left for work hours earlier. Even their dogs are missing. A note on the kitchen worktop tells me that the neighbour will collect them at eight, which means that they must have left more than an hour ago. I sit with the newspaper, eating breakfast. At the far end of the sunlit room, a large window stretches up to the ceiling, which follows the triangular pitch of the roof. It frames a cluster of pines across the lawn. The house, a spacious low-rise, was built by my maternal grandparents immediately after the war and embodies their faith in the modern, clean-lined and inspired by the American architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. It sits on a wooded hill just outside the village. A privileged child, I spent my summers here in the 1970s and 1980s, enjoying the huge garden and the swimming pool with my brother and my cousins. The place feels different now, after hearing Lean's story last night. The newspaper that I'm reading is the NRC for the 14th of January, 2015. Its front cover shows a long line of people in Paris, the Arc de Triomphe right behind them, queuing for copies of the magazine Charlie Hebdo. From a circulation of less than 100,000, it has run to 5 million copies for its first edition since the attacks. Inside the papers, there are photographs of the Empire State Building and the National Gallery in London, both lit up in the colours of the French flag. And under the headline, Terror in Europe, the shooting in Paris is described as an act of war. Articles and opinion pieces set out the threat to Jewish life in many countries, with synagogues closed as a precaution in case of attack. There is talk of mass emigration. More than 7,000 Jews left France for Israel just last year, one of the reports in the newspaper tells me, and numbers are on the rise. Lean's history and these recent terror attacks sit so strangely alongside the familiar house that surrounds me, the parquet flooring, the stylish modern and antique furniture, 
and the huge speakers of the quad stereo system on which classical music was always playing when I was a child. On the wall by the door, there is a little pencil sketch of a duck in a pond with some reeds around it, perhaps 10 centimetres across. A few nights ago, I learnt that this picture was given to my uncle's great-aunt by her Jewish neighbours just before they were transported to the east. Like almost all the 107,000 Dutch Jews who went through the transit camp at Westerbork, the neighbours never came back. That is why the little sketch is now in my family's possession. As I look at the picture, I am reminded of Lean's first observation about stories and families. This square of pencil lines is not even a scrap of information. Without the family story, it could end up in a junk shop if there was nobody left to tell. I reflect that for me, Benicom has never really had history. It always felt so modern and has had associations only with a happy youth. It feels different now. See, I, I ask you to read that passage because it sort of sends chills up and down my spine. I love that idea of a little picture, pencil drawing of a duck, mm. meaning nothing until it has its history. And as soon as its story comes, is given to it, it, it means everything. Yeah. And in a way, that's sort of what you've done with this book, isn't it? You're giving back the history to areas of, of the Netherlands which don't know their own history. There's this sort of mania for modernisation in the Netherlands. And also because it did sustain a huge amount of damage. Yes, So Rotterdam is almost entirely post-war, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, certain parts of the Netherlands sustained huge amounts of damage. I mean, Rotterdam absolutely flattened and the railway lines were really stripped by the Germans in, in the last part of the war. I mean, actually quite a lot of the rest of the Netherlands was entirely unaffected. Most of the great cities outside of Rotterdam were not bombed. But they sort of feel just so well kept and so modern that it doesn't feel like the kind of presence of of a history that you you get in Britain where I sort of think you know everything rattles people are continually talking about the war. Bart Vaness's The Cutout Girl is published by Figtree and you can of course hear the entire interview by scrolling back in the podcast feed. Next up Thomas Page McBee after this. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Thomas Page McBee's 2014 memoir, Man Alive, told the story of the abuse he suffered from his father and his transition during his 20s to a male identity. But his journey wasn't finished, was it, Richard? No, not at all. This is one of the reasons why his latest book, Amateur, is so fascinating. It's kind of beyond the point of arrival, then what happened next? It tells about how he, he discovered that as his body was changing, people's reactions to him were changing as well. If he found people, if he was in a meeting at work, he found people listened differently. He only had to start speaking with his new lower voice and, and the room was suddenly silent in a way that never happened to him before. And he, was, he found that, that people assumed he was competent in a way that, that hadn't happened before either. 
And so instead of people demanding that he prove that he could do something, people would assume that he would be able to do it because he had the potential to do it. And they would promote him much more quickly than he had been discovering before. And also, I mean, the kind of things that he was doing when he was living as a woman in terms of asserting himself. So he would, like, talk over somebody. They had a, a totally different meaning if he talked over a woman in his new body than in his old body. Now, last year, I read a lot of transgender things. We had a couple of interviews on this podcast. And I, I seem to remember saying that I didn't feel that it had found its its literary voice. There mm. were an awful lot of memoirs, but it's like the first draft of, of writing. Do you think that Thomas Page McBee is lifting the literature of transgender to a different level? I'm not sure if he's doing anything that's particularly new in a kind of literary sense, but what he's doing is he's moving on, as it were, to the next phase. I mean, we've heard, as you say, many people talking about their journey from one identity to the next, but then he's now exploring, so now I'm here, what happens next? I mean, he found that, that he started getting into fights as well with men, and indeed, this is, I think, the spur for the book, because he wanted to look that in the eye and look what it meant to actually be in this body and to find himself reacting with violence when violence was, was presented. And he started asking himself questions about that. In fact, when he came to the studio, I asked how an argument about a photo in 2015 pitched him into this sequence of events that led him in, into a boxing ring. Yeah, so I mean, actually, I would say that the argument about the photo is actually rooted even further back, mm-hmm. which was in 2011, which is when I began my transition. And so when I began my transition, I was reporting on the masculinity crisis, but I was also sort of going through my own masculinity crisis. As, kind of living it. Yes, yeah. living it. And what I mean by that is, on one hand, I was experiencing all of these privileges I'd, I'd never had before. So I was like, I would be in my apartment having a you know, feeling it in my body in a way I never had. And then I would leave the apartment and it was like, you know, I would get to work and I would realize that if I spoke, I would interrupt a woman just by like speaking, period. Like I would silence the room, you know. Yeah, the fact of the yes. voice was enough. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right, right. Or I was getting promotions in ways that were really fast and sort of, I would say, lubricated, it felt like. Like everything was, for me, it was happening in this way that, that was the opposite of my experience before so and then also like I was a threat by accident like I would walk down the street at night and I you know a woman would cross to the other side to avoid me so on one hand there were these sort of ways that I was I guess gaining a place in the world and then on the other hand I was feeling this sense of constriction like that was really intense so like what sociologists call the man box I was Mm -hmm. I was expected to behave a certain way and as I was meeting that expectation every day it felt like whether or not I wanted to it was sort of happening to me so for example in 2014 when my mom died I was having grief as you do and I felt like it was almost impossible for me to sort of express that to anyone around me because I felt like I could only be angry you know that was the only option yes you had an emotion it had to be anger right it was very hard to sort of you know outside of my most close personal relationships to show how I was really feeling and that constriction, you know, was, was lining up with a lot of what I, I was witnessing in the men around me and also what I was hearing about through my reporting around, like, you know, skyrocketing, you know, suicide rates amongst men, especially men who were out of work, which had a lot to do with, you know, their sense of status as men. And so all of that was sort of the tornado of, of my own experience that was happening on this day on Orchard Street. And, you know, my mom had just died a few months before. And it was the third time in three months that I had this experience of a guy out of nowhere wanting to have a street fight with me. And because I was maybe walking around with a lot of rage grief, I wonder if maybe they were picking up on it. But this last time, it was just so extreme. Like, I went downstairs to get ice cream at the bodega down the street. It's a very Manhattan thing to do. And uh, and I walked by this restaurant that I thought looked really cool, and I took a picture of it because I wanted to take my girlfriend there. 
and the flash was on by accident and it bounced back and this guy just came tearing out of nowhere and he you know he thought he took a picture of his car or did he? I don't even know. I don't think that so. was enough of an excuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah whatever. I mean, right. It didn't matter. I mean, he wanted to have he wanted to have this fight with me, and it went it went on and on and on this exchange. And and part of why it went on, I think, is because I didn't totally want to let it go. I was mad. I was frustrated. You could feel that inside you as well. Yes. And so anyway, it almost came to blows, and then it didn't because I you know I kind of like yelled at him, and and uh, he ended up thinking I seemed a little bit crazy, and so he walked away. But what that left me with was this sense of like, you know, I am like hurtling towards becoming this guy. Like this is this is who I'm going to be if I don't start asking serious questions about like why this is happening to me. And as someone who's trans, the whole point was to try to, you know, live my life on my own terms and be embodied in a way that felt good. And I just felt like that wasn't that wasn't happening for me. So the way I chose to deal with it was to to start asking questions because I felt like as a man, the first thing I learned was you can't ever question masculinity, you know, like Fight Club. So my question was, why do men fight? And that's how I got into boxing. Because boxing is just kind of where it's happening. Is it's it's fighting right, right. there. Right. It's it's fighting and you know, I've always been a boxing fan. I think boxing has this very literary reputation for good reason in the sense that there's something so you know pure I guess about a person being in a ring against another person and even if you just have a passing interest in fighting you can turn on the tv see a see a fight and you can see like every vulnerability in in both fighters you know it's very clear like what both people are struggling with so I guess to me it felt like a very very just I guess distilled way to engage that question was there a part of you that also wanted to learn some skills to fight back with? Yes, of course, definitely, I did. But, but that was part of I think what I what, what if what I was thinking of as the shadow and the Jungian sense. Like you know, I really, of course, I I felt a sense of wanting to commit violence to this man, and that was part of what was distressing me. But I feel like the advice I was getting from the men around me was, you know, well, you're not that kind of guy, or guys are just like that, or whatever. It was, there was no narrative for like, but what about the part of me that wants to do this? Like, and how do I confront that part so that I don't do it in a way that is troubling and problematic? And so shining a light on it, I think, meant being honest with myself about you know what was really happening there. At the same time, you say that your new body was giving you new kind of respect and new, it was lubricating things for yes. you. Was it also a way of putting yourself back in a position of being a novice? Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like learning thing. Like, here I am again, learning. But I think what was was so interesting is, you know, for me as a young person, I was a really, like, androgynous kid. I don't think I really, in any kind of sort of formal way, felt felt affiliated with the gender I was born. So I was always sort of this androgynous person. and And I definitely was socialized because we all are, you know, to some degree or another. But I'd never been... I never experienced the world in such a legible identity. So I think suddenly being this thing where it was bizarre for me to like walk into a restaurant and have there be like, you know, okay, I get the check. Like, you know, I, like I just never had that experience. Like it was, and, and so those things were- It had always been more complicated. More complicated, yeah. you know? And so I think, I guess to me, it seemed very much like there were two ways to handle that. One way was to sort of just accept it and maybe feel a little weird about it, but at the end of the day, be like, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's easy to say I'm trans and and you know I'm the person I wanted to be, and that was the hard work. And now I'm, now I'm just going to sort of fade into done. the night. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's the story in media often about trans people. Like it's triumphant. We do it. We're done. Mm. But to me, I just again, I just felt like it. 
what would have been the point of all of this if then at the end of the day I'm spending time and you know as a person in the world feeling dissonant in a totally different way and so yes I I felt like being a man and as I learned once I talked to sociologists and, and psychologists that this is like a universal feeling but but for me it felt like I'm not supposed to ask questions I'm not supposed to ever doubt myself or think why am I doing this or why am I expected to do this but it was my natural instinct as a beginner to, to do just that and I wanted to capitalize on it I guess and one of the other things that we're taught not to question one of the things that a very powerful myth is the myth of testosterone oh yes but again it's, it's, it's just more complicated than that it is it's my favorite you know so the book is set up as um a series of questions that I ended up asking myself like as I was training and I really committed fully and sometimes embarrassingly to like, and sometimes in a way that frightened me to, to really reporting out each question. And so the question I was most afraid of was the question of, does testosterone make you violent? Because I mean, I come from violence, I, I was abused growing up and experienced male violence and I really was afraid that I, I don't know, would in some way become destined to have this potential in a that way. You that you were was, literally injecting yes. it into yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. which was scary. but. You know, so that one I kind of held off the longest on asking about. Um, but I called up uh, Robert Sapolsky, who is a Stanford neuroscientist, a really famous Stanford neuroscientist who lived with primates for a year and a uh, very well-respected man. And he told me that, this is my favorite fact, actually, uh, I think I learned throughout the whole book, was that um, testosterone doesn't cause aggression. There's no such thing as an aggression receptor in the brain. That's not a thing. But what it does cause, as far as you know, they can tell around like chimps and so on, is, is status seeking. And so they run economic games where in order to win the game, you have to cooperate. And so in those games, the men with the highest testosterone levels are the winners always. But if you give a guy a shot and you tell him it's testosterone, but it's a placebo, those guys act like jerks. So obviously the way we perceives that as it's the myth yes it's yeah, the myth yeah. and and that doesn't make it less you know powerful like i think sometimes we talk about nature and nurture as if it's like nature is the powerful thing and, and nurture is the like really easily changeable thing and sure but culture is really powerful yeah and, it's the intersection of the two that's yeah, really poisonous exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah another complication i guess is that when you got to the gym you didn't tell people about your history you didn't tell them you're trans why why not mm, i think for two reasons one was that i I wasn't sure how people might react. So just from a safety perspective, I really literally wanted... safety. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a very intimate space, obviously, in terms of, you know, just you're, you're sort of in these like subterranean, you know, dank spaces with a bunch of mostly men in these like locker rooms that have no privacy. Big powerful men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Big powerful men who then you fight. Um, <laughs> so I just wasn't so sure how it might, how that might be received. And that was one. But more than that, I would say I was really interested in, in not, I've always been very out, and I, I wanted to not have this be a mediating factor for people in terms of how they treated me, especially because I, I intended to write, this was first you know a story that I was writing for Quartz, and I, and I really wanted to, to not spend the whole time wondering about if I'm being treated differently and like, you know, in terms of th reporting out the story. So that was, that was really... It was a kind of driving. methodological thing as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, is it also partly about the fact that every story is an individual? I mean, you, you say that you weren't passing as a man in the gym because you are a man, but yes. your brain, you say, was grooved by moving through the world in your before body. So yes. no one else in the gym had the same kind of story as yours. Right. But isn't the point that nobody has the same kind of story as anybody else? Of course. And I was thinking a lot about passing. You know, the book in, is sort of tortured around that. I think I felt very strange about, you know, because I, I'm such an open book and I really appreciate appreciate the potential to walk around and, and say, this is who I am all the time. 
But over time, I realized there are people in this gym who have stories that, you know, as I was learning a little bit about everyone, I found out things I had no idea or never would have expected, you know. And so the passing that was happening in that gym was happening in every, everybody, yeah, <laughs> which is also what's happening in life, you know. So I think I think I sort of over time got, got like I let that go as, a, as an anxiety or a fear because it felt like we were all in the same situation, but just from different backgrounds it's the part of the problem in the u.s that that men are defined in a binary opposition with women rather than rather than as in denmark as you say being manhood being defined in opposition to boyhood is is part of the the problem to look for other binaries or is it just junk the binaries yeah i mean i think binaries for me anyway whenever i see one i'm suspicious (laughs) you know that's the general rule yes because i think i think all all of our humanity comes from nuance, you know? And when you see something where you're being presented with two choices, unless it's really truly like, you know, I don't know, on a restaurant menu, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned about why and who, it's a power dynamic, right? Some, one is, one choice has to become the more powerful choice. Like a thing about, that's also in the book that I, I've thought about a lot since is this idea of good men and bad men. So in the US, I don't know if you say this here, but there's a lot of like, you know, am I a good man or, He's a good man, and and this sort of designation of being good, which is moral. It's a moral designation, and it's usually in reference to like this, like me too, you know, culture of like this guy is the good guy. He would never do this. He would never be sexually violent. He would never be sexual harasser. He would never be a predator. That's right. Trump was saying that Kavanaugh's a good guy. He's a exactly. good man. Yes, and so, so it's impossible that right. Yeah. Exactly, and it's such a I mean flawed logic on a basic level, obviously. But what happens is it becomes first of all it's a binary. So for there to be good men. And there have to be bad men. So that's a strange way to set this whole conversation up. But also, I talked to the psychologist Naomi Way from NYU, who, who I spoke to for my book, and we were discussing this, and, and she said to me something I, I really love, and I've thought about, I think, every day since, where she said, instead of asking yourself if you're a good man, ask yourself, how am I maintaining the status quo? And I thought that that was such a better way of framing it, because I think the truth is we are all maintaining the status quo in ways that we're often surprised by when we think about them. But once it's illuminated for us, we can change it, you know, if you don't like the status quo, which I think a lot of people currently don't. It's uh, not perfect, is it? Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. So so it's it gives you a little more freedom to sort of have a more empowered relationship with your own life and with your own body. That's not about proving to the external world oh, I'm so good, so don't look at me. I've got it all figured out. And that's also setting you up to fail because certainly no one's good all the time. So it's much better to to have an ongoing growth relationship with yourself. I, I guess one of the things that the trans mode of existence offers everybody is mm-hmm. the idea that we don't have to play the roles we've been assigned. Yes, of course, as does feminism. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, as does many, many ways in which, like, anyone who is from a marginalized identity who has sort of highlighted for the rest of us, you know, I mean, this happens around race too, like, why is this the neutral? Why is this way of behaving the way that we've decided is the right way or the way that, you know, we, everything has to be? Like, and in fact, in my feeling, like, the more we can expand out our definitions of what's possible, like, the more liberated we all are in our identities. Uh, this scarcity mentality actually has a lot to do with toxic masculinity because protecting one way of being is how we keep it consistent, keep, keep the same people in power always. 
And it's, it's one of the ways in which the, these definitions could be expanded. It's one mm. of the ways through kind of science fiction, technology, biology. I'm thinking of the kind of the kind of the multiple identities that people in science fiction stories put on their own bodies. These kind of alien gender yeah. mashups that you right. find in M. John Harrison <laughs> or in. Uh, is that one of the ways that we can imagine a future? Well, maybe. Although I feel like with trans people, I'm always hesitant with the alien thing, just because I feel like God born in the wrong body. Can it sound more alien than that? You know, like <laughs> yeah. I've always bris- right. Yeah, yeah. I've bristled against that my whole life because it's like I don't think I was born in the wrong body. That's not the way I would ever frame my experience. I was a trans kid. You know, I, my body wasn't wrong, but I did need to make some adjustments to it to sort of bring it into alignment. So I don't know so much if I think about that kind of thing as much as I think about like a lot of people say you know, who was your male role model or who are your male role models or how can we talk how can we talk to boys differently about men? And I think this notion that you have to teach people, teach boys especially, how to be men is very strange. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't a boy come into his sense of his gender in whatever way, you know, it makes sense for him and why can't we equip people? Obviously, gender exists and I'm a person who embraces gender, obviously. I'm really a fan of my gender identity. <laughs> I put a lot of work into yes, that. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I am happy to be a man, but what I like about the way in which my masculinity has come into being is that I've gotten to shape it myself. And some things about masculinity I love, like I love working out, I love having muscles, I love a certain, certain stereotypical things, but I also feel like I feel very comfortable questioning and sort of divesting from things that don't feel good to me and being able to to have that kind of liberated relationship with myself I don't think that's something specific to being trans that's something everyone should have yes <laughs> I, yeah and so I think when when men especially when 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 men who aren't trans get defensive or frustrated about this idea of toxic masculinity I think it's because they don't understand what that refers to it's a set of socialized behaviors you learn them in boyhood you don't have any control over that so what really like the what I'm advocating for is a an idea around masculinity where instead of having to just live the life that you were sort of handed that actually leads to as far as we can tell poor health outcomes violence you know actually poor environmental outcomes because men are less likely to recycle because they see it as feminine so these things that are actually just hurting not, never mind everyone else but also yourself why not like be a little bit interested in like well you know am I comfortable with every single thing that's expected of me because otherwise I'm just living this life that's constricted and in fact like as as people I think most of us are interested in living a free life so that's my pitch on why <laughs> you know? so take take some freedom yeah, yeah exactly do the work. why yeah, would you yeah. not want that three years later after you appeared at Madison Square Garden are you, are you still getting into fights on the street <laughs> no <laughs> I'm not I'm not getting into fights on the street though I. I think about it a lot. You know, when there was, um, in the U.S., there was this moment right after the election where there was sort of this existential question of, like, would you punch a Nazi? And so I've thought about that sort of thing quite a bit, you know. And, and I think I've sided on, on the yes side of that. You've think, got the skills now. Yes. I think, I think I, I'm not interested in violence. You know, I, I go to, like, Quaker meetings. I'm, like, I, literally someone who's not violent uh, as a core belief. But I also think one thing I've that surprised me about learning to fight was that I guess the biggest surprise for me was that I now think the fact that I know how to fight 
given that I was literally socialized, the fight was socialized out of me, you know, I actually think knowing that is a really important human thing. And I actually think anybody who wasn't taught to do this should learn how to do it, not so that you can walk around fighting people. And I actually think boxing doesn't encourage that at all. In fact, a big part of learning to box is learning not to fight angry. It's learning, you know, not to in any way have a temper or be engaging with this besides in the ring. But I think knowing in a more psychological way that I have it in me to fight back when I am threatened, I think that's actually on a just sort of psychological and social way really important. And I think it would be important for people in general and marginalized identities to know that. Ah, it's a striking idea that people who've never been taught how to fight should discover something of that possibility in themselves. Sean, that's a leading question, isn't it? You're one of them. <laughs> I don't like, I, I, I feel like I should really uh, start with some detail. No, I do not fight people. <laughs> and I don't go around punching strangers. You just punch strangers. a cushion. I punch a big cushion. Um, so yes, I, I, do, I do quite a lot of boxing and I do some kickboxing as well. And I don't really know why I started doing it but I think certainly the unexpected benefit of it is actually having a better sense of my body and what I'm actually capable of doing which is actually a real confidence builder like just just knowing what your own body is capable of like when you think about it do you know how high you guys could jump no, I know you had this story about having to jump onto orange boxes. Yes, <laughs> there was uh, part of some of the exercises uh, in terms of just generally getting fitter. Is um, jumping is actually quite a lot of a uh, an exertion for your body. But anyway, it's sort of the idea that actually having some sort of comprehension of what your body can do, even if you don't need to use that potential, it's actually a, a real lift to one's sense of confidence. It's fine um, that it changes the way that you assert yourself in interactions that don't involve Yeah, fists. she's always punching Personally, me. <laughs> <laughs> it's non-stop abuse. Um, no, I, I, it's funny. Um, certainly in moments of confrontation, it's, it's, I'm certainly not a person that would ever have a physical confrontation, certainly willingly, but I sort of, I feel like I hold myself with a certain amount of confidence in those situations. And as Thomas says, a lot of learning how to box is learning when not to when not to box. When to, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To back. yeah. And on that note, Thomas Page McBee's <laughs> book Amateur is out now with Canon Gate Books. Next week, I speak to the American children's author Jason Reynolds on his poem novel The Long Way Down, as well as his new run series about four children from different backgrounds who discover themselves while competing for a local athletics team. Now, before we go, just a moment to mention Guardian Jobs, which is sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Whether you're looking for a job yourself or you're a recruiter looking to attract candidates who are engaged with the world around them, Guardian Jobs can help you find your good company. It promotes a world of work where potential flourishes by connecting people with rewarding careers at like-minded organisations where values make the difference. So find your good company at gu.com slash goodcompany. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And join in the discussion as well on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. From me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.